The scripture reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. I realized that I did not introduce myself to you. So uh, good morning, friends. My name is Emily McGinley. Uh, uh, if you talk about me, you didn't use the pronouns she, her, and hers. And I have the great joy of serving um, as your senior pastor here at City Church, San Francisco. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift to come together um, to lean in close to what it is that you might have to say to us. And so I pray that you would meet us in this moment, that you would clear away those things that clutter our hearts and our minds so that we might be fully present and attentive to what it is that you are wanting to do within us, through us, and maybe even around us um, in our own specific lives, but also collectively together as a community. Speak through me because of me, um, and maybe also a little bit in spite of me, um, so that what it is that you have to say might be heard with clarity, to challenge us, to invite us, to comfort us, to remind us that you are with us and that we are with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> when I think about Martha so busy, busy, busy with preparing a meal for all the guests, I've always felt a little bit bad for her. I, mean, I picture her grumbling away as she mixes the flour with salt and water, baking the flatbread, preparing the olives, all the while side eyes and sighs for days. Martha's eyes are like daggers but Mary doesn't even seem to notice. The resentment grows and she narrows her eyes as she bangs the dishes a little louder than necessary. Who does Mary think she is? She's barely done with the meal and the clutter hasn't been cleared, the table hasn't been set, the wine uncorked, the water poured. She is not a servant, but everyone seems to be acting like she is. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Now, I didn't select this passage because it was Mother's Day, although I certainly recall more than one moment in a, when a scene like this could have been transposed over my childhood household. But it did remind me of a study about the role of cognitive load in household labor. You might know that the term cognitive load refers to the amount of working memory resources that are in use. Another way to put it is, um, is that it's all about the thoughts that you have to hold in your head at one time to keep things running, right? So like RAM for your brain, if you will. 
In this study, the researcher, Allison Daminger, wanted to assess the division of labor in household management between partners and found that while some aspects, such as decision-making, are fairly evenly divided, cognitive labor, a vital but invisible aspect of household management, is a particularly gendered phenomenon, at least in heterosexual households. The research showed how anticipating needs, identifying options for filling them, making decisions, and monitoring progress are responsibilities disproportionately held by women, regardless of their employment status. In order for the next thing to happen smoothly, efficiently, and effectively, someone has to be thinking about it, and more often than not, it's the ladies. I once heard a lesbian friend mention how nice it was to be married to a woman. Two high-functioning women meant everything got done right away. <laughs> Now, we could talk about whether and how this is um, specifically about gender or if it's more about socialization or, dare we say, the patriarchy. Regardless, it's safe to say that it was all of the above in Martha's time. And this idea of invisible labor is a powerful one that I'll return to in a bit. But first, let's peel away some layers because there's some really interesting things that the author of Luke is doing here. So when Martha finally complains, I've always felt like Jesus' response is really unfair and frankly maybe even a little bit ungrateful, right? Like how, are the, how the heck are people going to eat once he's done with his lesson? Martha needs some help and Mary is clearly not doing her part. Why would Jesus see this and not back her up? Why would Jesus not see this and back her up? I mean, it's not like he could just take, you know, like a couple of loaves and fish and make a meal out of it, right? <laughs> Okay, well, we'll call that an exception to the rule. But I'll just put it out there. I feel for Martha. I mean, how many of us keep our side of the street clean, fulfill our responsibilities, only to see some other yay who completely, blatantly, and unapologetically drop the ball on theirs? This is basically like a first century group project situation here, right? But if you pull back the lens a bit, you'll see that in this passage just before this one, our passage starts at verse 38, but if you back up to verse 25, you'll find Jesus in one of his many theological sparring matches with these religious leaders called Pharisees. And now the Pharisees are the rule guys. They loved debating about the fine print, the best way to split hairs. It was basically modern day Pharisees who advised President Clinton way back when to say, I only did it once but I didn't inhale. That's a joke for us old people. So in verse 25, a Pharisee poses this question to Jesus. Teacher, he says, what do you have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, answers with questions of his own. Well, what does the law say? How do you interpret it? And this guy, he's quick on the draw. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love the Lord, your neighbor as yourself. And here, the author of Luke is doing a setup. Because if you know, you know. But if you don't, well, this Pharisee is responding with the two central commands found in Hebrew scripture. The first half, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. This is what our Jewish friends call the Shema. This is so embedded in Jewish living and practice that folks will fix it to their doorposts of their homes as a reminder of their covenant with God and God's covenant with them. Then the second half of this response, the second piece, love your neighbor as yourself, is a value that you find repeated throughout Hebrew scriptures. And I say this is a setup because Jesus uses this encounter to show, or sorry, Luke uses this encounter to show how Jesus interprets both of these commandments in the verses that follow. Love God and love your neighbor, right? So after the Pharisee answers correctly, Jesus is like, great job, okay. But this guy wants to split some hairs, right? Because he's Pharisee. But who 
is my neighbor, he asks. So Jesus tells them a whole story about this Samaritan, which is code for a shady, untrustworthy, inferior person. This Samaritan who helps a person who was robbed, beaten, and left bleeding on the side of the road. All of the respectable church folk walk by, but the Samaritan doesn't just stop to help the guy. He takes him to an inn, pays for his stay, and promises to come back and cover any additional costs. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? That's a pretty good start. But then there's this other piece, loving God. And that's what our story today is about. So the quick answer to this question, what does it look like to love God, is to look at Mary, right? There she is, sitting at Jesus' feet, fully attentive to what he's teaching. And scholars will tell you that Luke is deliberate about who he chooses as the heroes in both of these scenarios. He goes for the most scandalous options. It's the Samaritan who demonstrates neighborliness, not the good church folks. And it's the woman who bucks social expectations to sit at Jesus' feet. Scholars will even tell you that Mary's choice to not do her duty is not just like a feminist girl power move, right? It's much more consequential than that. She's at risk of bringing shame on her household by ignoring her duties. And so her choice to sit at Jesus' feet underscores her faithfulness. This is all very important to understand in order to appreciate what's going on. But to stop there would be to stop short. And this brings me back to cognitive load, or more precisely, the concept of invisible labor. Now today we're beginning, as um, Jason mentioned earlier, a new sermon series highlighting Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. And as I reflected on the histories and legacies of Asian Americans, I couldn't help but draw a few connections with Martha's circumstances. Now if you know much about US American history, you might know that there were two primary immigrant groups which constructed the first transcontinental world Transcontinental Railroad. One group, the Union Pacific Railroad Company, started in Omaha, and the other, the Central Pacific Railroad Company, started from Sacramento. Now, this photograph records the uh, Golden Spike celebration, which marked uh, the completion of this railroad um, line at Promontory Summit, Utah, on May 10th, 1869. Now, at this ceremony, Leland Stanford, co-founder of the Central Pacific Railroad, connected the eastern and western sections of the railroad with a golden spike. How did they get there? Well, in the second year of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Pacific Railroad Act of 1862. Well, history lesson here. This opened the idea of a railroad that ran from the Missouri River to the Pacific Ocean. Under the act, the Union government chartered the two railroad companies to construct the line, and both companies were promised vast amounts of land and government bonds for each mile of track that they laid down. There were three types of bonds that the companies could receive. One for the different kind of rigorousness of the the tracks that were laid down. So for tracks that were laid on level land, each company received, in today's dollars, about $461,000. $461,000 per mile. Then for tracks that were laid in foothills, so, you know, a little bit uneven, um, they were paid about $922,000 per mile in today's dollars. Finally, the government paid each company for each mile of track laid in mountains. They paid them about $1.4 million per mile. Not only did the government promise bonds, they also promised land grants. 
The railroad companies received 6,400 acres of government-owned lands for every 10 miles of track laid. So by the end of the project, the amount of land that the two companies had received from the federal government equated to about the size of Texas. It was this wealth which enabled Leland Stanford Sr. to eventually purchase the land on which Leland Stanford Junior University was built. The junior college, I've been told it's called. Uh, so with these incentives dangling in front of them, it was really a race to cover as much track as possible, right? And the tougher the terrain, the better. Of the 12 to 17,000 estimated laborers who constructed the tracks, about 2,000 of them were immigrants from Ireland. And then beyond that, the Central Pacific imported between 10 to 15,000 Chinese immigrant laborers. Now, these laborers were paid less than their white counterparts, were required to provide their own lodging, and had the formidable task of laying the track across the Sierra Nevada mountain range. They blasted 15 tunnels to cover 1,776 miles with 4,814 feet of new track. It's a lot of numbers I'm throwing at you. It's an impressive feat of human perseverance, of engineering and tenacity, something by which anyone looking back should feel impressed, right? But if you were to look back, and more precisely, at the image of the laborers taken at that Golden Spike ceremony, you would be hard-pressed to find one Chinese face. Nearly 90% of the laborers who made this project possible were rendered invisible. Less than 20 years later, in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act would be passed, preventing any more Chinese laborers to enter the United States. It was the first significant law restricting immigration in the U.S. and the only one of such to name any non-indigenous groups specifically. So if you were here several months ago when um, Robin Huey gave testimony and she talked about how her family had been in the Bay Area for five generations, that's her family. And that's why you see this gap, right, in immigration for so long for many um, Asian Americans. So now these facts are kind of hard to swallow, right? It'd be easy and completely legitimate for someone to grow bitter, resentful, and angry about this kind of history, or to choose to ignore it altogether, right? And we see it. Some folks minimize the brutality and the unfairness and injustice um, and racist conditions of the experiences, while others are bitter, resentful, and angry. And they should be. It's terrible, right? So then what are we to do? Well, this brings me back to Martha. So there she was, putting in all this labor, right? No one's helping her. It all seems like everyone is either ignoring her or completely taking her work for granted. As one person I, put, know, uh, I know put it, nobody wants to help, but everyone wants to know when dinner's ready, right? And so when she asked Jesus to back her up, it feels a little rough to have him shut her down like that. Why would he do that? Well, here's what I think. Martha grew up in a world which told her very clearly where her place was and what her duties were and what she could get in return. And because she is responsible and reliable, because she's clearly the one who makes things happen in her home, Martha accepts her role. But what she can't accept, what she won't bear, is that Mary doesn't. Never mind the fact that Martha and Mary also have a brother, Lazarus, who she's not asking to do anything, right? It's toward Mary and only Mary that Martha feels resentment and animosity. The audacity of Mary to not know her place and it is this mindset why I think Jesus responds the way that he does. There is an order and a structure here. It says that women serve and men are served. That men learn and women support. 
It is an order that Martha has been shaped by, formed for, and oriented toward. It is determined less by vocation or giftedness and more by gender, economics, and status. Martha has abided by it, but Mary has chosen not to. And because of this, Martha has become bitter, angry, and resentful. And it might be easy to write her off in this, right? As someone who just has sour grapes, doesn't get it, is out of touch, just an angry woman, right? But that is a two-dimensional reading of Martha. Because remember, at the top of this passage, actually, Martha was the one who invited Jesus to her home as a guest. She wanted him there. It was her honor to host him. And maybe she was excited to have him in her home. Maybe Martha actually has gifts for hosting and finds a sense of vocation and hospitality. Maybe she's like my partner, Rich, who reads through recipes for fun, who likes to think about how to creatively pull flavors together and finds great satisfaction and joy in seeing people enjoy the food that he cooks. Maybe that's where Martha's heart is, too. But in that moment, she could not host properly. Sure, she could cook a meal, set a table, pour the wine, that's all well and good, but the state of Martha's heart had her so filled with resentment that she couldn't enjoy Jesus' company, and he couldn't enjoy hers. Martha was, in many ways, understandably, resentful. But some of that resentment was rooted in a social construct that she had assented to, that said that women are supposed to serve. And the fact is that I don't think Jesus bought into that contract. He wasn't here for it. I think Jesus wants people to flourish where they are with whatever gifts they bring and who cares about what you're supposed to do. Maybe there were some men in that group looking toward Martha and wishing that they could join her in the kitchen, thinking, no, she's doing it all wrong. You know, let me go in there and show her how to, yeah. God created us for good work, even hard work, work that creates a sense of pride and joy and effort in the accomplishment. We feel good when we've done something, right? We can feel proud of it. But when we're robbed of this, everyone is robbed in some way. There is a world where we all get to flourish. There is, if we're willing to give ourselves over to it. And a big part of that giving over is less about doing what other people think you should be doing and doing what more of what you have been gifted for. There is another world where Martha has invited Jesus to her home is preparing the meal while he teaches and is filled with joy at the opportunity to host him. There's maybe even another where she invites the guests to come on and pitch in because she wants to sit down and listen too. In all scenarios, she might feel overwhelmed or pressured by the task list, but the difference is in her mindset because she's burned out in her hosting role because she's been shaped by a cultural system that is gendered, not only gendered in its distribution of responsibility, but takes her for granted in it. Martha can no longer find joy in her work. The guests deserved better than that, and so did Martha. Jesus loved Martha deeply, and he wants her to know that this love is real. And because Jesus loves her, he isn't willing to participate in her internalized oppression. His expectations are not the same as the ones that she grew up under. And so when Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, it isn't so much from a paternalistic tone as it is from a place of lament. Because Jesus wants more for her. And Jesus wants more for us. God has created us for meaning, for purpose, for joy, and for freedom. 
freedom to be liberated from the systems and structures and voices that tell us we can only be this, that we are only capable of that. Jesus came to not only show us what it looks like to be free, but to disrupt the ways in which we oppress one another, the ways in which we oppress ourselves, to help us carve out a different future for ourselves and for one another, a future where there is enough spaciousness for us to be who we were created to be. Can you imagine that? On May 10th of 2019, descendants of the railroad workers gathered again in Promontory Summit to celebrate 150 years since the completion of the line. This time the photo was a little more inclusive, a reminder to us that the past does not have to determine our future and that the way things are is not the way things have to be. The way things are is not the way things have to be. This is the reality that Jesus wanted to invite Martha into, and it is what Jesus is inviting us into today. How is God inviting you to disrupt those voices that leave you bitter or resentful? In what ways is God inviting you to co-create a future that recognizes the pain and the injustice of the past and thinks creatively about how to address that and meet that pain and that injustice? but to co-create a future that has room enough for everyone, including the parts of ourselves, like Martha, who just assumed that we couldn't exercise. Make your labor visible, not just for you, but for all of those who will come after you, who need to be able to see that labor. And one day, you might find yourselves marveling at the tapestry of God's good work, not only for those who were supposed to recognize the Leland Stanfords, right, but for all of our contributions, which we also call the communion of saints in the Christian tradition. Those folks on whose tracks we have traveled so far. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for all of those who serve faithfully, who have found ways to find their vocation that participate in your work in the world. And we ask God that not only would you grant us the vision for what that vocation is for us and the courage to live into it, but also help us to be the kind of community that empowers one another, that affirms one another, that creates space for one another to recognize and pursue that vocation. Help us to be your church so that we might continue to lay tracks for those who come after us. We pray this with gratitude and trust in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.